Welcome to Finding Joy with Live Love App. Join us for thoughtful commentary on software development, design, and news of the week, all while finding joy in our lives. All right, listeners, welcome back to episode three of Finding Joy. Mike, how are you? I'm doing so well, Brian. How are you doing today? I'm doing well-ish. We had a bit of a COVID scare last weekend, so we had some family come visit uh, and uh, somebody tested positive. So the whole household was a little on, on uh, you know, pins and needles there for a little bit. Uh, for the listeners, in case you don't know, we have a two-month-old, so we were a little concerned about little Evelyn, but so far everything is fine and, and she's doing okay. So, but it's been an interesting week for me. I hear you. Yeah. COVID is kind of ripping through my friend group right now too, causing a lot of havoc to schedules and things like that. But hopefully it's just a little spike for the summer and things will normalize again here shortly. We can get back out to it and having a good time. I think so. With that said though, it's been a great week in terms of just work and the weather's nice here in central Oregon. So I've been able to get out and do some mountain biking, uh, went for some nice hikes. So I've been really enjoying that. So it's, little bit of a mixed bag, but it's nice to be able to get outside. Yep. Uh, how's Live Love App doing? Live Love App is doing well. We, I think, you know, I think what's interesting about being uh, a size company that we are is that growth is something that we're focused on, but doesn't come easy um, because uh, as you know, it's just the two of us that are revenue producing and we're really trying to pivot more into getting more inbound leads. And that's really difficult when you have such a small team, right? It's not like we can just like hire some huge marketing firm and pay, you know, 20, 30, $50,000 to just like make things happen. So it requires a lot of effort from you and I, which I think is interesting. It's been kind of a challenge to keep revenue up, to keep clients happy and to focus on growth. And so juggling all three of those balls, like it's just really challenging. Yeah. It's a, uh... It's also those carriage for like economic factors and the environment that we're in, you know, kind of entering bear market territory. I think we're feeling a little bit of stress right now, figuring out how to properly grow when right. we have some new headwinds that we couldn't have predicted. That's right. Yeah. I think, I think one of the things that I can be thankful for is we so far haven't had any clients just bail on us. Right. Right. Um, so when I was freelancing on my own kind of, not to harp on COVID, but when I was freelancing on my own, and I remember like March, you know, that famous month of 2020, I had a contract. Uh, it literally, they were like, we're just stopping. Like, we don't know, we don't know where the floor is. Everything's just in free fall. Like all external contractors are like stopping. I was like, do you want me to like finish my like story and get a PR up? And they're like, nope, it's fine. You're done. I was like, okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll just push up my branch with what I have. And, uh, you guys let me know if you need anything. Uh, yeah. so I think even with the economic kind of downturn that we've seen, especially in the tech stock market, I don't think that it has kind of flowed down to small companies like ours yet. And we'll see how, kind of how that impacts us. Um, we've definitely seen, it's a big layoffs, right? I think what 18% mm-hmm. of employees at Coinbase got laid off last week. Yeah. Um, a couple of the organizations kind of shedding some headcount, um, specifically in the tech sector, um, as their kind of stocks are taking hits. 
So it'll be interesting. And it's a little nerve wracking for us. Right. And kind of how is that going to flow down to us and impact us? For sure. Yep. So, yeah. you know, it'll be interesting to see how we navigate this. Um, I'm not too worried about it yet, but ask me again in a couple of months how I'm feeling. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> I will say, I mean, we're not heavily invested in the crypto market or Web3. So I think maybe we're a little shielded from that exposure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we do have clients that are startups, but nothing that's in that market. And I think that's taken a beating pretty hard. Um, as is everybody, but certainly that one stands out for me anyways. It's just kind of becoming um, a very, very challenging place for companies to thrive in with the lack of capital right now. So yeah, yeah. outside of that, anything else on Live Love App? We're doing, so we, we started a podcast. We're right? making some we're big website changes. We have we're someone in sales changes. now. Yep. yep. Uh, so we're focusing on marketing and sales. Yeah, we're trying to focus on not just bill, 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 right? Which right. is easy to do, right? I mean, we could, the two of us could probably just kick back, build 20, 30 hours a week and do nothing else, right? That would be probably a nice lifestyle, easy journey. Um, but that doesn't have like any sort of growth mindset built into it. And so I think focusing on growth is really challenging and figuring yeah. out, how to grow is challenging. <laughs> That's something we were talking about the other day. Uh, Brian and I were in person together for a day. And, uh, you know, we like to say that it's hard to pinpoint exactly when Live Love App started because Brian and I started working together last June. But in terms of trying to grow this and turn it into something real, that's been more of this past January. That's right. Um, so June up until January was what I call lifestyle mode where, yep. uh, you know, we weren't really investing back into the company too much, just kind of taking our share of the revenue as we produced it. And there was not a hard life. Mm. Uh, you know, mm. we could work our 20 to 30 hours a week and, and, and put food on the table and, you know, cover our expenses. Um, but we're trying to build something different now. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and not to knock that life. I mean, I think there's a lot of consulting companies, partnerships out there, um, especially kind of in, our, you know, front end ecosystem kind of people that do this. And I think, I think that's a great path to choose, yeah. right? Just, you know, stay busy. I know if the market keeps money, going that way. I'm switching back to that lifestyle. And that's not a bad option, <laughs> right? So, um, but we are focused on trying to market some stuff. So we've, we've been creating this podcast. We've been putting some blogs out there. We've got some more blogs in the hopper. So for those that are listening that want to check out some of our blogs, We've got some interesting ones coming out, I think, in the next couple of weeks. So be on the lookout for that. Yep. Yep. Well, what's been going on these past week, week and a half, Brian? You want to talk about news of the week? Let's do it. Okay. I think you have a few. Uh, I, yeah. right, off the, right off the top, we have Copilot. Let's talk Copilot. Yeah. So GitHub Copilot is generally available to all developers. Um, I kind of take for granted that everyone is at least a little bit aware of GitHub Copilot at this point because it's, you know, it's been in the news so much over the past. Has it been in beta for what a year? Maybe year a little or two? Longer? Yeah, something like that. Um, but essentially, what GitHub has done, they have trained. I want to say they're using OpenAI underneath the hood, um, but they're mm -hmm. they've trained an AI model on all of the open source code published on GitHub, so that 
as you're typing code in your editor, this AI model is looking at the code you've already written and is trying to predict the next section of code that you're about to write. And it um, provides that as kind of like a hint to you. And you can accept that hint to have it basically auto-complete whatever you're about to type up. So for example, if you're going to type, write a function that adds two numbers. If you just wrote a little comment saying function that adds two numbers together and hit enter, Copilot would probably accurately predict the entire body of the function that you were about to try and author. Mm -hmm. um, so it can be a really productive tool. I'm going to use the word productive. Mm -hmm. um, what's yep. your experience with it been with it so far, Brian? Definitely very productive. So I got in on the beta as well. Um, I don't know, a couple months ago, six months ago, something like that. I, I think I just kind of sat on it and then I tried it out. Um, and it's incredible at how good it is. It's not always 100% accurate, but it'll at least kind of get you close enough. So let's just say I'm writing like a function for express and I'm, you know, whatever, an API, I'm going to create a user, something like that. It'll literally, if I say, hey, I'm going to create a user function, I want to accept these arguments or, you know, this request object, and it's going to have these properties on it. It'll like write out the whole function and it'll be pretty darn close, which is pretty awesome. Um, so I think what's interesting is the AI apparently is looking not just at like globally available open source code and how people might write code, such as an API to create users using Express, but it's also looking at my code and saying, well, how would Brian write this, right? Oh, Brian's using DynamoDB, so that's what we're going to use here, right? We're not going to write a SQL statement to insert the user. Uh, so I would say that GitHub Copilot just, it's kind of freakishly awesome. Yeah. Right? Um, I mean, it's really good. It's like scary good most of the time. Some of the times I'm like, nope, not even close. And that's fine, but it's really good. It's way, I think it is the next level of like IntelliSense has served us well for decades, right? Uh, or whatever you want to call it, you know, code completion, these kinds of things. Um, and that's just through static analysis, right? But I think taking this to the next level with AI knowledge built into your code editor is just fantastic. Yeah. And how much are they charging for? What did they say? They come up was it like 10 bucks a month or something? Yep, that's the new price. That's stupid cheap. Yeah, I mean, how quickly do you think you make that back uh, in a half hour? Easy, <laughs> half like hour? it's paying for itself in about half an hour of programming. Yeah, yeah, you know, Copilot impresses me the most when I'm writing tests. Like, I think that's where it just excels because, oh, yeah. like, you write one yeah. unit test for let's say a component. And then yep. you describe the second test. And because you've already written the first one, it's already looking at it in all the ways you set up that first test. Yep. Nine it times interests. out of 10, it just gets it right based on the description it's amazing. of the test. Yeah. Similar to your comment, right? If you put the comment above a function. Exactly. exactly. It'll, it'll like, oh, this is what you want to do. And so if you say, you know, it should you know, display a list of users. It's like, oh, sure. I can do that for you. I'll verify yep. that it displays the list of users. Yeah, it's pretty fantastic. And what is really awesome is like, it's not built for like one framework. It's not like this is Svelte specific or, or even language, Python specific. Like this works. So if I'm in a React project and I'm writing like a Jest test, 
it knows it. If I'm in an Angular project and I'm writing a Jasmine test, it's like, oh, sure, great. I can do that. Mm-hmm. So incredibly powerful. Um, it'll be interesting to see kind of where it goes in the future. Um, you know, what would be that next? I, I mean, I imagine it'll, it'll, it'll evolve and get better. It'll be interesting to see how the pricing model changes. Yeah, I I am a little shocked by the ten dollars a month because if I were a software engineering manager, I would. It's like a no brainer to me to buy this for the whole team. Like I, so, I can't imagine why I wouldn't buy the ten dollars a month. I couldn't imagine myself not buying it a hundred dollars a month. I probably more. Yeah, Think about like how much you're paying. That's how much brands. value it's given me in the past because I've been in the beta for about nine months now. That's how much yeah. value I probably have derived out of it. Like I'd probably pay like a hundred to 200 a month for it and not even mm-hmm. blink. So mm-hmm. for it to be $10 a month, well, and as an open source maintainer, I actually get it for the low, low price of $0 a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It's worth every penny. Mm-hmm. Mike, I'm going to get a potential a little spicy here. Do you think <laughs> with Copilot that people that complain about this thing called boilerplate do you think Uh that's gonna disappear oh no (laughs) what do you mean no well i mean just because they don't have to write the boilerplate anymore doesn't mean they're not going to complain about having to see it or having to check it in or having to review it in prs you know it's just the narrative is going to change when i use something like let's just pick on an uh akita when i use akita and have to write all that akita boilerplate you know, instead of me saying, oh, I have to write all this Akita boilerplate, like, oh, Copilot has to write all this Akita boilerplate. And I'll still complain about it. I'm just picking on Akita. <laughs> I don't know if there's boilerplate with it or not, but, you know, something like it. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. I'm just curious. <laughs> Here's a question. Here's another maybe fun question. Do you think we will see CLIs uh, get like thinner, smaller, Will developers rely less on, when I say CLIs, I mean like code generation tools, um, you know, specifically like maybe the Angular CLI. I generate out all these files and all this code and it kind of stubs, it scaffolds things out. Do you think scaffolding based tools will become less prominent and less important with Copilot? I think so. Um, like I know that, before Copilot, I used to have a lot of custom snippets um, just for like scaffolding out like yep. an Angular component. So I'd write yep. a lot of snippets in my editor. Yep. And I can't yep. remember the last time I've actually used one of those snippets. Because yep. this point, if I do like if I do like import component from Angular core at this point, the top, it's going to kind of predict already a lot of the component definition for me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, you know, I've, I've noticed that about myself is that I'm relying less and less on the snippets that I used to rely so heavily on. I predict that we will know, this is Angular specific. I will predict that we will know when the, the shift has made its way to standalone components, when GitHub Copilot automatically adds standalone true to the component metadata. That's when it's official. <laughs> that's, when it's, that's when it's official. That's, that's when everybody's using the standalone component API, which I predict will be in a long time. <clears throat> That's, I'll, I'll just throw that in at the end, which I think will be a long time. <laughs> One extra little hot take on the co-pilot I, business. I think, I think my autopilot's going to be driving down the road before that happens with my car. Here's another thing that I'll say about co-pilot though. 
um, I notice I write my code differently. Like I've, I've used it for so long at this point that I kind of have gotten a sense of its behavior by it. I'm being trained by it. It's yeah. It's sentient. (laughs) Did you hear? Oh, wait, I'm going to go to the side note. Did you hear about the Google engineer that said his AI was sentient? I did hear about this, yes. And then and they I don't believe let it works at Google anymore. Like, okay. <laughs> I don't believe it. <laughs> Is it a, I shouldn't assume it's a he or the pronouns. I apologize. The Google engineer, I, I don't right. remember what the person's name was, but I, I saw that in the New York Times and I was like, oh, no shit. And Google was like, definitely not sentient. <laughs> <laughs> definitely not like this is not the case which i'm not a conspiracy theorist but part of me was like uh-huh all right uh-huh. all right uh-huh yeah it's like a natural language ai and i believe if i if <laughs> i remember right. the story correctly they asked it the, the google engineer asked the natural yes. language ai if it had like feelings and it responded yes but it's been trained on human text yes so language. you know it's going to give a human human response Right. Humans have feelings and it's, so you know, therefore, it's learned how to speak yes. like a human. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't, I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we're there yeah, yet. I, I have been trained by Copilot for sure. Like uh, this is the order of things. Like I'll just do things differently. I write so much more documentation now because I will just like hmm. write my little doc block. And I'm like, yeah. this is a method that yeah. needs to handle the click event and dispatch this particular action. And then I hit enter and Copilot's like, Here's the full implementation. I'm like, oh, thank mm-hmm. you. That's very kind of you. Mm-hmm. Um, so my code's so much better documented than it used to be because I write documentation mm-hmm. first now. Yeah. Um, yeah. I write way That's more thorough awesome. unit tests just because it's so much easier to generate a bunch of tests with Copilot. Mm-hmm. Do you um, think Copilot will impact you to be more test driven? That's, that's kind of what I'm implying by it. Just, well, I don't know if I'll do tests first. I can't imagine okay. myself doing it that way. I, I'm definitely more of a top-down thinker than I am a bottom-up thinker. So I yeah. like to think about like, like I, yeah, yeah. I, I just can't, I, I struggle to get my head into writing tests first. So I've always mm-hmm. write, write tests last, but my yep. tests are getting a lot more thorough and I'm writing a lot more of them because of Copilot. Yep. Yep. So I recommend it. If you've not tried it out, give it a whirl. If you're not immediately impressed, yep. just try learning how it works. You know, it, I used to own a Tesla and it honestly reminds me of a lot of like learning the behavior of autopilot. It's like one of those That's things right. where you're interacting with an AI and have some weird behaviors, but you kind of mm-hmm. get used to it. You learn where mm-hmm. to compensate and when to let it take over and you kind of build this little relationship with it, which is a weird thing to mm-hmm. say. Um, it's true though. You start to understand it a bit. Yeah. Cause it's, it has and behavior. It, and it's learning you too. Like it's a, it is like a two-way relationship. Yep. Yeah. I think the, there's a couple of things I think I've heard, I think generally from people that I've just chatted with kind of two pushbacks against Copilot is, you know, if people rely too much on it, they could introduce on the low end bugs into their code because they're just assuming Copilot got it right. And they're not like reviewing the code that Copilot writes. Right. And then maybe even on the, the worst end of that spectrum is insecurities. So is Copilot going to import the wrong package? Right, those type of things like NPM right. is Copilot going to introduce some sort of, you know, maybe insecurity to my my application through a dependency, or is it going to inter- just write code that's insecure? So all of that, and so obviously the answer to that is like Copilot is giving you suggestions. You still have to take the suggestion and go with it. Right, there's still human. Right. You're still involved in that. 
And I think the other pushback that I've heard is, uh, you know, when you use Copilot, if I understand correctly, you have to give Copilot access to your code in your editor and it's sending your code probably encrypted, right? But it's still, it's sending your code to a server on GitHub somewhere, right. somehow that then is analyzing your code. So your code right. is leaving your machine, if you will, or leaving your intranet or your VPN or your network and going out to something else. So I imagine that in the future, that will not become an issue. I wonder if there will be a way to run this kind of behind the firewall in the future for large companies that are kind of more security focused and don't want their code going out into the broader ether web. Um, and so um, I wonder if there will be an on-prem solution. They do say GitHub for companies is coming later this year. So it'll be interesting to see what that entails. Probably a pricing model, I would assume, some sort of you know bulk pricing model, model for enterprises based on developer seats. Um, but I wonder if it'll also include some of these um, concerns kind of being answered. So we'll see. Yep. We'll see what happens. All right, go get Copilot. Uh, where do I go to get it, Mike? Uh, that's a fantastic question. I would just type Google. in the old Google GitHub Copilot. Get it. Uh, it's 10 bucks a month. You can start a free trial, I think, um, until August 22nd is what it tells me. But I heard somewhere, somehow, that some people are getting Copilot for free. That's right. All you have to do is be an open source maintainer of a reasonably large open source project. Well, how so, about that? You know, if you've got a favorite open source project, like a thousand stars or more that you really love, get involved with it, make some PRs, get added to the repo, and you can have Copilot for free. Well, there you go. Hot dog, it's a new Microsoft, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come developers, on. Developers, developers, developers. Holy shnikes. <laughs> Meanwhile, Safari. <laughs> Safari is the new IE. <clears throat> it's a whole new world. All right, what else we got, Mike? All right, this one is, I'm sure we won't spend as much time talking about this one, but it is, this one is sad to me. Um, okay. So the Voyager spacecraft, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, they are probes that we launched out into our solar system almost mm -hmm. 45 years ago. Whoa. Uh, and they have well outlived their, ex their life expectancy. I want to say that they mm -hmm. were only anticipated to be used for a couple of years, uh, but they are solar mm -hmm. powered. They have the solar arrays on them. And yep. they've just kept chugging along for 45 yeah. years. They've been going further and further and further. I want to say Voyager one. I don't know. They might actually both be interstellar at this point or entering interstellar space. You know, they've left mm -hmm. our solar system essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and as they get further and further from the sun, they char are charging less and less and less and less. And over those 45 years, NASA has turned off different instruments and, you know, really try to conserve mm -hmm. power and get as much out of them as possible. But it seems like we're finally entering end of life stage at this point. Yep. Um, they're not able to charge anymore. There's not a lot of instruments left to turn off. It's kind of might be the end of the Voyager era to some degree. Yep. Yeah. Um, for those who are not immediately familiar with the Voyager satellites, these are the ones that have the golden records on them. The really That's right. cool. Um, it's a collection sounds of sounds Earth. and images and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. little bits of human culture, just in case, you know, something ever picks it up that wants to learn about us. It's mm -hmm. out there on that little golden record. 
Yeah. So these were launched in the 70s. Looks like Voyager 1 was September 5th, 1977. Voyager 2 was August 20th, 1977. And they were really meant to just be like a four or five year journey. Yeah. So that's incredible. Yep. They took a really famous picture, I want to say in 1990 of Earth. Um, Mm -hmm. This was like, they're 3.7 billion miles away from Earth at this point. And Voyager 1 took the picture of earth and it's a really pale small blue dot so it's the famous pale blue dot photo came from voyager that's right yeah Yeah, so the voyager trivia it was 3.7 billion miles from earth yeah just an insane amount of that was in 1990 it's still been going so you know just think how far away it is now yeah um yeah just an insane journey for both of these incredible spacecraft so yeah, Incredible. it looks like it looks like Voyager one left the heliosphere, basically the of our solar system, in 2012, yeah. and Voyager two yep. followed suit in 2018. Incredible. Um, Incredible. Another piece of Voyager trivia: If you've ever seen Star Trek the Motion Picture, I want to say Voyager one uh, becomes the villain of Star Trek the Motion Picture. Really? Um, I'm not a Star Trek fan, so I, do, I have no idea about this. <laughs> How does it become a villain? I can't quite remember. It's been a long time since I've seen Star Trek, the motion picture, but it's called Viger, Viger or something like that. Uh, Cause the text okay. has like faded over time. So only that all that oh, remains is got V-G-E-R. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I want to say some life form or some, something sentient kind of latches onto it and it becomes this really large thing. But yeah, the very center of it is the Voyager one satellite. So like, that's how long Voyager, these Voyager satellites have been part of sort of pop culture and, that's cool. um, and you know, sort that's of our narrative cool. of space. Uh, for those who don't know me, I actually have Voyager two tattooed on my my left arm is my is my first ever tattoo. Um, Why it's hidden behind 2? my t shirt sleeve. Uh, you have you've got to pick one, don't you? You've got to pick got to pick I mean, one. You of could them. have both. You got two arms, Mike. <laughs> I mean, they look kind of identical, so I could really just say it's whatever Voyager satellite I want it to be. Probably, uh, and I wouldn't know the difference for sure. And I imagine most other people. <laughs> want yeah, I don't think I don't think a lot of people would like look at it and be like, "Oh, that's that's Voyager." Um, yeah, they'd be like with some sort of satellite thingamajig with long <laughs> arms or whatever, long antennas. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I remember yeah. when I was getting it, I asked my tattoo artist. She spots she specializes in fine line work, so it's like a it's an all black line work tattoo. Mm-hmm. It's like, is this the first satellite you've ever tattooed? She's like, Yeah, I've never tattooed a satellite before. I'm like, yeah, I, I what <laughs> in Rocket <laughs> like, City, USA? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I got the, I got it in Nashville. To be fair, oh, you got it in Nashville. Not I was at Huntsville. I imagine like people are getting rocked. Everyone's got their Voyager yeah, or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> I think it's pretty cool though. That's it's a fascinating story. Like it's a feat of engineering. Um, it also is interesting to me as just kind of a broad somebody who's broadly interested in space. I wouldn't say I'm like a like huge into it, but I find it all quite interesting. But it seems to me to also kind of signify another part of the narrative of kind of NASA's journey through what NASA has been, right? I mean, NASA in the 60s yeah. and 70s and 80s and the transition, you know, more towards privatization of space, you know, hiring companies like Blue Origin or SpaceX and kind of transferring off some of these things you know, I think this speaks to the glory days of NASA to some extent, right? I mean, 1977, I mean, that's pretty powerful. Um, big budgets, you know, really putting together incredibly talented people, super smart people to build these things and to 
honestly, to have such a huge impact on humanity. Um, so tip of the hat to the team and everybody over the 40 years, right, of what it's been to uh, kind of record all that information and to share it. And then we have new things, you know, in progress today, you know, like the, the recent launch of it's not, it kind of replaces the Hubble, right? Telescope. I don't remember the name of it. Forgive me, but they just launched it this last year. Right. <clears throat> right. And it, it took a while. The James to like Webb unfold. telescope. The James Webb telescope. Yeah. Yeah. Which is going to, it's just another series into this, you know, incredible um, kind of journey as humanity explores um, yep. not just our, you know, where we live on earth, but our solar system and, everything that's out there. It's very cool stuff. Very cool yep. stuff. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. Um, is there going to be some sort of like party? I mean, uh, like, you know, you got to go back to Huntsville for this, Mike. I mean, it's like, is there going to be some sort of <laughs> <laughs> event? Like, like the yeah, final beep? Like, you know, I you don't know. I've got this, I got this really cool framed thing of the Voyager satellite that an old friend of mine gave me. And I'm sure I'll probably have some kind of Voyager party at my place. Um, I think you should. I, yeah, I would definitely will. If if that if they end up turning off for good, I'm having a Voyager party. You should make a slideshow, so. like you know, put it on your TV with like the pictures that I sent back and stuff. Uh-huh. That'd be fun. Yeah, that'd you be very I mean? fun, wouldn't it? You step in this cocktail or whatever, having you know water, whatever you're some drinking, you some spacey tunes, some lo-fi the, ambient. Yeah. yeah, I think that'd be great. Yeah, everybody that's listening, you're invited. Since we have, if you live listeners. in the Portland area. <laughs> Message me on Twitter. I probably won't respond, but I'll try to respond. You can come to my Voyager party. I've got about uh, six cool. chairs in my apartment, so that's there's room for five that's, of you. That's perfect. <laughs> that's perfect. You know what's crazy? The, think about this. The computers on these had 69 kilobytes of memory. 69 KB. You can't yeah. even ship a JavaScript app. <laughs> Here we go. 69 KB, right? You can't even like, you can't even render a, fuck, a web page with 69 KB these days. Like, I mean, I can't even like, what dependency is like 69 KB? I don't know. Well, I guess some dependencies are probably, you know, like maybe Ramda or Lodash or I don't know, something like that is probably, you know, highly tree shakeable and very small. Um, but what JavaScript framework is, is that is last 40, if we could get a JavaScript framework to last 40 years <laughs> and only be 69 kilobytes, I think that is it. That's the, that's the moonshot right there. Yep. Uh, very <laughs> cool. Well, I definitely appreciate you sharing that with us. All right. We got something spicy next, Mike, what do we got? Well, I think on the surface level, the news, this news is not spicy. I think this news is somewhat exciting. I just, this is going to elicit some hot takes from me. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned I'm going to get on my, on my soapbox um, about this. So Brian, keep me in check. But uh, PyCon recently occurred and That's PyCon right. is kind of the biggest Python conference in the United States. Um, I've uh-huh. never personally uh-huh. been, but I've had, I've worked alongside him uh-huh. that kind of made it a habit to go. Sure. One of the cool things about PyCon is that it's a traveling conference. So I think they change the city every year. Um, yeah. So yeah, for yeah. 2022 is in Salt Lake City, which we're going to yeah. for NGConf in August. That's right. Yep. And uh, Peter gave the keynote at PyCon and mm-hmm. he announced a new project called PyScript. It's a, uh, I, I don't think it's the first one that is like this, but this took or got a lot of attention 
mm-hmm. at PyCon this year. What PyScript essentially is, is it is, I want to say it, this one is probably an interpreter, but mm-hmm. it allows you through WebAssembly to mm-hmm. run Python code in the browser. So his demo is really awesome. Um, he used a custom element, a custom web element called mm-hmm. pi-script. And then mm-hmm. you put your Python in between the brackets of PyScript and it mm-hmm. would just run as if it was like a script tag. So this was a PyScript tag. And so mm-hmm. in terms of like the aesthetics of the demo, it's awesome in terms of being able to leverage WebAssembly to get other languages mm-hmm. running. Obviously, mm-hmm. we've seen this with like Rust and C and C++ for, you know, it feels like five to 10 years at this point. But seeing mm-hmm. languages like Python, which require a little more runtime alongside mm-hmm. it, running the browser, mm-hmm. that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it came with a full library for interacting with the DOM. So using Python in this uh, keynote, they were mm-hmm. able to query for DOM elements, make them interactive, handle you know a- events, all sorts of really interesting um, typical web development type things. Um, so the project is called PyScript, P-Y-S-C-R-I-P-T. Uh, very fascinating product. What's your take on it? Um, my take is that I think the, the number one thing that I walk away from having kind of followed this a little bit and read about it is I think it's really a fantastic exploration into the capabilities of WebAssembly. And I also don't think that the goal is to replace JavaScript. I know some people might've saw this news and said, JavaScript's dead. Long live Python. And I don't think that's the case. Um, I don't think JavaScript is going anywhere in the browser. Uh, But I think that this is a truly innovative solution. And I think it's really cool what they've done. So I'm excited to see this develop. Um, I don't know anything about the performance of it. I don't know anything about kind of what are the edge cases? What are the barriers? You know, I also don't know, like, are there more capabilities than you would get with JavaScript? I would imagine not because the API of the browser is still the API of the browser. Um, So you're still limited by that no matter what. So even everything that it's doing, so if it's got like a DOM manipulation library, at the end of the day, that's just like a middleware into JavaScript, I would think, right? I mean, it's still calling web APIs, which are in JavaScript, JavaScript, right? So at the end of the day, like JavaScript is not going anywhere. It would be interesting to see, though, if we do see some support from browser vendors to uh, provide APIs in other languages. I think that would be a more interesting story to tell in terms of like replacing JavaScript. But I think this is a really fantastic story in terms of how innovative you can be in the browser today, especially with things like WebAssembly. Yeah. Which is really, you know, one of the things that I really like about this project is that I think Python's a really great first programming language. And I think that Absolutely. has borne out in a lot of like um, pre-college education. So I, I know oh, a lot yeah. of students, even as, as young yeah. as elementary grade are learning Python. <clears throat> and so the ability to take those Python skills and run them in a new place like the web, that's just kind of cool. Mm-hmm. You know? I think Anything we can cool. do to get more people into web development is, mm-hmm. is awesome. Mm-hmm. And Python's mm-hmm. a great intro language. And so getting getting those developers into the web space is really fantastic. Yeah. 
It'll be interesting to see uh, some of the things that come out of this, because I can imagine a lot of really heavy data-driven analytics, uh, scientific applications potentially becoming more native in the browser um, rather than running on the back end. You know what I mean? So you, you could see kind of a, a move to the front end from some of this, I would say, you know, data light applications. I don't think you're going to see, you know, you're not going to have a client, you know, go through terabytes of data locally, right? You're still going to do that right. in, the, in, you know, servers and cloud and all of that. Um, but, you know, something like, like think about like TensorFlow, right? TensorFlow is kind of a machine learning tool written in JavaScript. I think you could see a lot of like, Sci, is it PySci, SciPy? I'm sorry, I forget which way it goes. Um, but I wonder if you're going to see a lot of libraries like that that will be usable on the front end in a WebAssembly yep. context to enable some really cool, innovative scientific solutions um, that For sure. run in the browser, which is like, it's just a huge win, right? I mean, the, the browser continues to be the platform of choice for a lot of places. Not to say that, you know, writing Swift and iOS or Kotlin or Java on Android are also great platforms, uh, but the web continues to evolve and be a great platform to, to work in. I mean, that's, that's what we do. Right. And so I think this is a, a fantastic example of the web uh, continuing to evolve and innovate, which is just a great story. You know what I mean? Uh, it's so good to see that happen. So I know some people saw this, and kind of were like, oh no. <laughs> and that's not at all the way I see it. So, yeah. Um, there, But there's a part of this that just, it, it, and it's not really, I don't think, he hits on this in the talk a little bit. Uh, in the talk, he does have a throwaway comment about JavaScript being kind of an atrocious language. Um, it is. I, I don't know if I agree. I mean, uh, it's kind of like, you know, it's grown up over the years. It's grown up. Some, it's matured. Really it's kind of like saying that PHP is, an odd, is a bad language. It's like, well, it was. It's also grown up. I mean, it's got like full right. OOP and you know what I mean? Like it's definitely changed over the years. I have a lovely time writing TypeScript these days, generally. I would say I much uh, prefer writing TypeScript over PHP. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to do like, a bit of both over the past couple of months. Yeah, but to be fair, the PHP that I've read is just like, you know, kind of dropping in some hooks into WordPress for particular. Right. Like, how do you feel if you're going to do like a big project in like a modern like version Laravel. of Laravel? Yeah, yeah. exactly. You'd probably be having a great time. I'd be having a great time. Yeah. So. Um, and so, yeah, that that comment from the author and then some of the, like just the general community discussion around this, it, it honestly, when I see developers comparing languages and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to delineate between, I'm going to call productive, big languages that have huge developer communities. So I'm just going to say JavaScript, Python, I'm going to throw PHP in there, C, C sharp, Ruby. Yeah. When I see developers Java, picking between one of those like big tier languages. Yeah. I would rather be talking about the ligatures of my font and my code editor than talking about comparing <laughs> these two languages. Like that's how little it matters to me or I care about it at this point. Like, I just don't yeah. care. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, I just don't like it's, it's, it's the most useless discussion to me right now to compare like JavaScript and Python. I had to deal with this at a previous employer of mine. And it was just like, who cares about this? Wait a second. Hold on. How, why I mean, it's not the name of the employer's name, but 
But why would you compare JavaScript and Python in what context? We're we talking like back. So like, like at, at a previous employer, Python? we were about to start a big project in AWS. And so this is a greenfield project. And it was being handled by a team that had more JavaScript developers on it. And at the time, the AWS CDKs were more or had better support for JavaScript. And so the decision was made uh, to do it in JavaScript, actually TypeScript uh, specifically. But sure. across the company, there are more Python developers. And uh, so there, was, there were some vocal Python yeah. developers who weren't even going to be working on the project for like a year or two, as it turned out, um, that were just adamant that that was a bad choice, that was a bad language choice. And um, it, just, it, it just didn't even bother. Like it... Like I said, yeah. I'd rather I'd rather compare how your what 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 font to use for your editor. Operator Period mono code. Oh, use operator mono. So we both use operator mono. I'd rather talk about the ligatures of operator mono versus Furia code than talk about Python versus JavaScript. At this point. I don't do the. I don't like it when it puts all the equal signs into that one block. What is that thing called? Oh, see, I don't like that thing. See, this is so much more thing. of a productive conversation to me. Yeah, I what don't is like it called? it, but it is that either. It, it, that's, it does that with ligatures. It's a, it's a ligature thing, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't like that. But I don't know the name of that specific symbol. I don't like that either. I have that turned off. Some developers turn it on, and I think it's really With the not equals, it does like the equals like math. <laughs> yeah, right? with a big dash. The slash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like when you're doing um, like comp like computer science math, I forget what it's called. Like uh, you, you write it like that. You know what I mean? You have like ors or a v, ands or like a caret. Yeah, and you have the equal sign with a slash. I just don't, I, I'm not used to reading it that way. So it's just a readability thing for me. I think it looks cool, but like, I don't, I don't do it. So yeah. Yeah. I hear it. Hmm. Here's my criteria for picking a programming language for a project. You ready? Go. I thought long and hard about this. And by that, I mean, I've thought about it for 30 seconds. So this is, this is how I feel. Does your language that you have selected have good community support? And by that, I mean, yeah. are there packages available for it? Are there developers yeah. that use it? Are you able to find blog articles, Stack Overflow questions, documentation yep. for your language? Yeah. For the application you're about to build, are there libraries that are going to help you build that application in the language you Right. Right. Yeah. For the application you're about to build in the language you've selected, can you hire other engineers for it mm -hmm. in your market mm -hmm. that you're in? Yeah. Yeah. And then finally... Can Copilot generate code in that language? If you've answered yes to all four of these questions, it's probably a fine language. Just go build it. I would say I agree with the first three. Maybe not Copilot because it's still kind <laughs> of throw intro. That in. Yeah, sure. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to my old days. I did, you know, in a previous life, I wrote some Cold Fusion, right? And I would say it meets all three of those criteria. But it's pretty. I it's dying right as a language yeah. so like hiring is quite challenging. yeah could you hire yeah let's say i don't think you could but hire I think you, cold fusion you i think you surprisingly can a lot believe it or not a lot of government websites were built with cold fusion are still being built in it yeah i guess let me, so, let me rephrase that hiring thing because i think to me it's like can i get a lot of candidates at a good market price point right like right. i think if i were to open up a job posting tomorrow for the same position and one was right. for python yes. and one was for cold fusion i'm gonna get a lot more python developers yeah, or or React and TypeScript versus right. Yeah, Gold Fusion or something like that. That, but that's just. I mean, that's just part of the evolution of the the ecosystem. But I think you know you you speak to you know languages like Cold Fusion or maybe if you're doing some old you know pre you know some VB script or something like that. There's still 
large communities around those languages. It's just they're not growing communities. So maybe that's more of an asterisk on one of your points. It's like yeah. a growing community. And that would be more towards greenfield development. Because I, like I said, I mean, if there's a huge, if you have a huge cold fusion application and you're making tons of cash with it, I, I don't know. I probably wouldn't rewrite it, to be honest. I wouldn't go be like, oh, we need to rewrite this thing in Python because that's going to somehow bring in more cash. Like probably not, right? Unless you're hitting like really serious barriers, right? And it's costing you a lot of money, whether that's in the hiring space or building space or innovative or whatever that is. Um, then you yeah. might reach out to something like, a, you know, the, some, you know, you know, micro front end or micro, you know, services or something like that, different architecture um, if you have to. Um, but, yeah. but certainly I agree with you on most of those points, maybe not the co-pilot thing, because I think that's still <laughs> coming that out. a joke, right? Yeah. But I mean, co-pilot does support .NET, Java, I would think Swift, Python, Kotlin, TypeScript. Python, TypeScript. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, like I my first language that I learned, well, yeah, the first language that I like really learned to love was Haskell. And I'll still like occasionally we'll do some Haskell development. And like when the advent of code comes out, um, I'll do like the first Haskell. 10 days in Haskell. I love Haskell. I'd love to do some pair programming with you in Haskell. Interesting. Uh, but I've never once tried to get a client to write in Haskell or, you know, do a professional project in Haskell because yeah. it just doesn't check those boxes. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, fair. And I think for a lot of applications, there's a green happy path, like, if you're doing web development in a browser, unless you, and then here's the cool thing about, you know, going back to PyScript, there's some really cool Python libraries. We'd mentioned a couple of them, especially mm -hmm. around science, math, and AI, that if, if you have a use case that's really drawing you into those spaces, it might be really interesting to pick PyScript because you can use those libraries. For anything yep. else, I would just stick to the happy path of web development at this point, which is probably TypeScript and React. Yep, I agree. Even, yeah. even, as, even as an Angular boy, I'm telling you that, the happy path is probably that stack right now. So you're going to get to hire a lot of people. You're going to get a lot of support, really great libraries for it. You're going to have a productive, awesome time. Yeah. If you want I your agree. fancy ligatures, fine. Go try PyScript. But yep. ugh, beyond that, the conversation just kills me. It makes me gray, Brian. It makes me gray. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I hear you. I think, I think, uh, I think you're right. I think I agree with your general take, right? Um, and with that said, though, people are allowed to have opinions, right? Some people like, you know, code with spaces and no brackets. So be it. It's fine. It's all good, right? Just turn on prettier. Or what's the one for Python? Turn on black. Be done with it. Boom, done. Yeah. That's, I mean, like you said, Python has a huge community behind it. And libraries and pip and all these other things right and uh thankfully we also have that in javascript so yeah so we're not rewriting our website into PyScript. is that what you're telling me i've already started oh good good no good. uh i see i'm going to backtrack on all my advice i'm going to redo it in closure <laughs> script actually um that would be better not. yeah that'd yeah. be a lot better for us let's do the back end in scala i feel like a really good tool yeah now you're talking it has all the things we've just mentioned. Perfect. Um, you know, it's funny. I think language, I think language choice is more of a 
financial business decision than it is a technical decision. In most I cases, I completely agree. In in for profit entities, now if you work for government or NGOs or scientific organizations or you're funded by grants or higher academia, potentially languages are really language choice is more important because the financials maybe don't quote unquote matter, right? I mean, you've got to ship something or you've you got to fulfill a grant proposal or or write a a paper or whatever it is, right? But language choice in that dis, in that realm is really like opinion matters and, you know, kind of go for it, right? Like language choice is really important. But I think a lot of times when we talk about language choice in for-profit entities, it's just not that important. What's more important is, is, you know, how quickly can we ship a product? How can we validate? How can we get to market? I apologize. There's apparently a motorcycle going down the street. Those things are really important, right? And I think those all trump uh, uh, any sort of like technical decision around a language choice. So there you have it. Absolutely, absolutely agree with you. All right, Mike, what else we got? You know, I think that's all the news that I had for this week. A lot a lot to discuss. You know, I'm really excited about Copilot and PyScript. Yeah. Um, you know, I, again, we've harped on, or not harped on, we've, We've boosted Copilot but as much as we can, but still, go get it. Go get Copilot, and then use Copilot to write a PyScript based front end framework that is sixty nine <laughs> kilobytes or less. That is the, that is your task. Go <laughs> for your it. Task. Install Copilot. Sign up for the beta, and build a PyScript front end framework for the web. That is 69 kilobytes or less and has to last 40 years. Good luck. Shouldn't be a problem. Enjoy. <laughs> uh, well, I bet you could do that. Like I, I could probably write it, right? I could write a PyScript framework that just like spits out something really silly and I'll just leverage HTML, CSS to do everything else. And but maybe, yeah, maybe done. I have to imagine, I'm not looked, I'm not tried using PyScript. I bet you the WASM bundle that it takes to actually get PyScript running. Oh, uh, what? My, come you on. think it's small? I think it's gotta be You're tiny. not getting a good, I, I've not run it yet. I'm happy to be proven wrong, but I suspect you're not getting a good Lighthouse score with PyScript. Ooh, here, let's tangent. Did you see there was a little bit of on the, the old tweet machine? I think uh, uh, a Angular uh, fellow that we all know, uh, Ben, who wrote, who maintains RxJS, uh, kind of latched onto a tweet around Lighthouse scores. Did you see that? I've not seen it. Let me take a look at it. Yeah. Let me, let me pull that up for you on the tweet machine. Mr. Ben, what was Lash. the take of it? Uh, basically, for most web apps, Lighthouse scores don't matter. Yeah. I I strongly agree with this. You do? Oh, yeah. So much of web perf talks that I've seen are all about things like timed, like timed interactive or first load or things like that. And uh-huh. that's always made a ton of sense to me about for like e-commerce sites that's or right. like websites in general. Yep. And I've yep. never built something like that. All of my web development has always been what I call to be like a captive audience web application where all of the behavior was hidden behind a login form. And it was like a very interactive web application. And none mm-hmm. of our users cared one bit about first load or time interactivity um, because they would open up the web app and then they'd use it for like six hours of the day. Mm-hmm. 
it, all agree. the perf that mattered was runtime run time. at that point. Yep. Yep. I agree. And so I've yep. always appreciated lighthouse scores and and a lot of focus mm-hmm. on those kinds of metrics. And I get that there's there's probably a lot more mm-hmm. web developers building those kinds of experiences, the kinds mm-hmm. of captive experiences that I've gotten to build. Yep. Yeah, I've always just kind of been like one e- in one ear and out the other, so to speak, for a lot of my professional development because it just didn't. Just doesn't matter. It the, in terms of the performance story, performance matters a ton. The kinds of performance characteristics that mattered more to us had a lot more to do with runtime, runtime, mm-hmm. than and mm-hmm. then like a lot of the initial load metrics you'd see or you'd get out of a lighthouse report. I agree with you. Yep. And I think that was generally, I didn't read all the tweets, but my, that was what I kind of saw. I think that was the general take of what Ben was saying was like, Hey, hold on a second. Like, you know, your cumulative layout shift or your timed interactivity or some of these other metrics, not dismissing them, but they don't always matter in all instances. Right. Right. We don't need to have, you know, painting the first pixel in under a hundred milliseconds for a a web app that is somebody's going to go to and then go get some coffee in the break room, come back and start their day. Right. What matters is they're going to run, they're going to use that application for the rest of the day. And it needs to be able to perform, needs to have good memory management, all of these things so they can continue to be productive in it. So, yep. Yeah. I'm looking at the tweet now and I'm seeing a lot of people misconstruing that not caring about scores means you don't care about performance. And that's not what I'm saying either. I don't want to be Correct. misconstrued. I think performance is critical for all kinds of applications, but the kinds of performance metrics mm-hmm. that you care about are going to differ based on the kinds of experiences you're delivering. And that just makes a ton of sense. Yep. You heard it here, folks. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, That's it, it is. That's that. I mean, measure what matters, right? Don't measure things yeah. that don't matter. If it doesn't matter, don't measure it. Like, oh, you can measure it for like to know, but maybe it's not super important, right? Um, yeah, like the last big web have- app I worked on had maybe like 200 total users, but they were daily users of it. And we had a service worker and it cached the entire application bundle. Once you got it once, you're pretty much good to go. Good to go. Yeah. Um, but were we rendering at 60 frames per second on some of the really real time interactive visualizations? Yes. And that took a lot more engineering work. That takes a lot of work. Yep. Uh, and that's Absolutely. where we spent our time in terms of performance, not caring yep. about that initial page load. Yep. So, yep. Cool. We'll uh, let's we'll talk about joy. Link to that tweet. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Mike. How are you finding joy? I'm finding so much joy these days in my Portland adventure. I was just telling you a little bit about that before we hit record, but just spending a lot of time outside, lots of activities right now, meeting a lot of new people, making a lot of new friends. Um, but one of my favorite things about Portland, and I'm hoping you'll continue to let this occur, is that about once a month, I'm able to hop in one of my Jeep Renegades, one of my hundreds of Jeep Renegades I have parked around the city. Your freedom moves. My freedom moves. And take that across over Mount Hood, across the Cascades, and into Bend, Oregon to spend a day with Brian working in person. Mm-hmm. And that usually includes a hike. So it's usually yeah. about four hours of working lunch hike dinner drive back home yeah it's been very nice it's been Uh, very nice yeah it's a fun place to come visit it is a fun place to come visit i want to i want to do more than just visit i'd like to i think come camp at some point there um but yeah we did this 
what not this monday i guess it was last monday it's like a two weeks uh last yeah like two weeks ago something like that yeah um so yeah we brian got us a space to work out of at the bend public library um so we yep. worked in the library together collaborated on some marketing and sales tasks that we had to knock out yep had a great little lunch at a it was really great taco place. It was really good. I think about it was that really lunch great a couple yeah. of times since then. I can't remember the name of it, but uh, if you're in Bend, Oregon, type in yeah. Vegan Deli. It's near the library. It's a really tucked away spot. Um, there's two really lovely people in there working. We were there, and we had some sunflower seed pate tacos and romaine mm-hmm. shells that were just salad great. raw. Oh, salute. Sorry. Salute, salute raw foods. Yeah, salute yep. raw food. It was great. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. And then uh, we did a six-mile hike around or starting from the Lava Island Trailhead. So it's across yep. the upper Deschutes River. Um, I'm, I love the Deschutes River. I'm going to know every inch of that river, it feels like, at this point. <laughs> it's, pretty, <laughs> it's pretty great. <laughs> it's a good river. I've seen the lower Deschutes. I've seen the upper Deschutes. Um, we see the middle. Yeah, we've had a bend. So you've, you've seen the middle as well. Yeah. You know, we just had a great hike. We got to watch an osprey try and hunt for some trout. Uh, yeah. Got to exercise our trout fishing knowledge a little bit to try and figure out where they would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Got our yeah, steps. It's a great hike. Yeah. yeah. So we hiked from Lava Island Trailhead to what's that other trailhead there? Dillon. Dillon Falls Trailhead. So, yeah, and you could park at either one um, and kind of get out along that trail. Absolutely glorious Deschutes National Forest. So, uh, just beautiful and not too trafficked. Um, it's no, pretty it's nice. Very, and, very lovely yeah. day. Terms for of being traffic. so close to Bend, it's only like a 10 or 15 minute drive, but it's just not on the radar for a lot of uh, folks that come into town to do hiking and stuff. Um, so, yeah, which is unfortunate because it's a beautiful hike. It is uh, a gorgeous hike. Yeah, you were picking on me for my, for the way that I hiked though on this one. <laughs> I was not picking <laughs> on you. I was just saying you get it when you go uphill. <laughs> your gait, like most people that are listening to this, can can relate. Like when you are hiking and you start to go on an incline, like from flat to incline, like your gait usually changes a little bit, right? Like usually a little bit longer. I yeah, would the way say. you carry yourself. The yeah. way you carry yourself is a little bit different, right? Because you're kind of moving your you know, using that energy to move up the hill. Um, and I would say most people's gate, like, I don't know, it's like 1.2 or something X, but like you have like a 1.5 X when you hike, like your steps go like so wide, like so long, you know what I mean? It's just like, holy cow. So, and I have long legs and it's like, you're beating me up the hill. Um, and so it's always fun. But you know, it's funny. Uh, I've, I've had this fitness journey over the past, God, I guess it's been 15 months now. And so much of it has been hiking and all that hiking has been solo. Like I'll occasionally get to hike with a friend. You know, this is one of those occasionally get to hike with a friend. But when you're hiking solo, as much as I do, it's so hard to figure out like, how am I doing in terms of fitness? Like how in shape am I? Am I improving or not? Um, Cause no one's doing the same trails as you. No one's keeping logs and I'm hiking three to five times a week. Uh, but another way that I've been finding joy is I've started running recently and I've never run in my life as an adult. I've ran a lot as a kid, but as an adult, I've never been on a run, never owned running shoes, never been like, oh, I'm going to go out for a jog. 
Um, so since the last time we recorded, I've done three, my first three runs as an adult. City runs and, too, not like trail running, yeah. just to be clear, right? Because you've done a lot right, of the hiking. Trail Those are on trails. These are on like sidewalks, yeah, roads, exactly. whatever. Yeah. There's a, there's a way. Riverside Park is the name of the park near my apartment in Portland. And mm-hmm. there's, there's a loop you can do from the Tillicum Bridge across Riverside Park up to the Steel mm-hmm. Bridge and then back down the river Esplanade. Um, I think it's like a five mile loop. There's a lot of people that run that loop. So I was having done a lot of hiking. I was like, okay, how am I going to do with running? So uh, there's a friend of mine. She helped me. She's like, okay, just go run one mile and figure out if you can even run a mile. I'm like, okay, I'll go do a mile. So I did a mile in nine minutes. I'm like, oh, I can run a mile. That's pretty interesting. I didn't know I could even run a mile. Um, and I did not feel spent at all. So for the next run, I'm like, I'm going to do a little bit more distance. So I planned out a wider loop and I did 3.6 miles the same. Oh, nice. At the same pace. So I went from one mile to 3.6 miles. Turns out I can run 3.6 miles. Uh, so this morning I woke up, felt like I was in the mood for a run. And I'm like, well, I wonder, I was able to do 3.6 miles at a fairly decent pace. Could I do more? So this morning I ran 7.2 miles at a 10 minute pace. Very nice. That's fantastic. Um, so I still don't know how far I can run. I'm just, I guess I'm just going to keep doubling my number until I find out like what my max is. Uh, but I think 7.2 miles is a 10 K or a little, maybe just a touch more than a 10 K maybe a touch less. Mm-hmm. I don't quite know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's a lot of validation, you know, having done all this hiking and not really knowing how, how that's been going compared to other people now shifting into running like, Oh, I can actually run a lot further than I thought I could. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Been, been a very joyful experience. That's awesome. You sound a bit like uh, Forrest Gump. You know, like you've seen the movie. I know your, your parents love it. So I assume you've seen yes. it a few times, right? Definitely like, he's like, I started running. I can't, I could try to do like, I start running. I got to the edge of town and I kept running. And then I got That's to the bad. edge of the, the county. So I kept running. And then I got to the edge of Mississippi. I don't know. That was so not I, bad at all. So I kept running. <laughs> <laughs> right that's how, it's yes. kind of how you, you were like well i did this and i did this so the next thing we're gonna you're gonna be like so i got to i don't know gresham so i kept running <laughs> running <laughs> I, I got to mount hood so i kept running <laughs> i got to the warm uh, springs so i kept running can, that'd be that'd be i'd be thrilled um would you head yeah, towards for those... the ocean or would you run away? <laughs> I would go towards, towards the like, ocean. I'd go towards at least like, yeah, at least like it's like a hundred miles. There's a place to stop. Yeah, I don't want to go to Idaho. Yeah, I mean, I agree. But yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, you know, because then you could say I got to the ocean. So I turned around and I ran the other way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I didn't feel spent after 7.2 miles. Uh, I need to take a, you know, a couple days of recovery. Um, but I guess I'm going to aim for 10 next. We'll see how that goes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know. That's exciting. There's a, yeah, there's a, uh, there's a lot that I'll, I'll share more about the running as we go through it. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah keep us informed. Let us know how that goes. Yeah. So what about you, Brian? How are you finding joy? Uh, I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, as you were mentioning, you know, it's getting to be summer. It's nice out. 
feel, I'm feeling an itch to go camping. So yeah. interestingly enough, uh, you know, we just had a new addition to the family and we're now parents. So that's kind of a big change in lifestyle for us. Um, and, you know, a lot of times in this, in the winter, I'll usually book, you know, camping trips out. So, you know, you got to book these things, especially like, you know, to get wilderness permits or to get campsites, all this, you know, you're booking, you know, eight, nine months in advance. Uh, and so I didn't do that this year because uh, we, we just honestly weren't sure what life was going to look like this summer for us um, with kind of change of lifestyle. And so with that said, we kind of said, yeah, you know, we'll figure it out. And so I don't have any camping trips really planned. So I'm feeling this itch. Well, I, I did go like a couple of weeks ago. I did book two. We're going to do one overnight backpack and then we're going to do one car camping. Uh, but yeah. I'm still trying to figure out how to camp with a, a two month, three months. Maybe she'll be like four months by the time we go. But like, I don't even know what that looks like. It just, uh, yeah. for anybody that's does, where does she camps, sleep? Like, what does she sleep? I don't on? know. I, that's what we were. Well, if we car camp, we're like, I guess we'll bring the bassinet and put her in the tent with us. That makes you sense. I mean? But like, if you were to like, like backpack with her, what is that going to look like? I, she's sleeping on the floor. I guess. I don't know. Sorry, Evelyn. Welcome to it. Welcome to it. <laughs> Do you get a little baby pad? Like a little midwest? <laughs> A little foam thing that there know, must be some kind of inflatable device. Oh, I'm for this. sure there is, but like they grow so fast. I don't want to, gr- you know, I mean, it's so like, I don't know. I've never done it before. I've camped with a dog. That's pretty easy because you're just like sleep in the corner, dog. And they're like, okay, I'll sleep in the corner. Like, no problem. <laughs> right. Yeah. Kids are different. So it'll be interesting in terms of packing the gear, carrying. Like, obviously, we can't expect Evelyn to carry her own stuff. You know, and so like it all is going to be quite interesting. Plus, you got to pack in, pack out. If you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah, because yeah, there's a lot them. of there's a lot of manufactured yeah. garbage to get rid of at the end of that yeah. experience. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what this is going to look like. So, <laughs> I think one of the things that we're trying to figure out is like, hey, we I think we've decided we want to do some camping. Or she's a healthy kid. She loves being outdoors. We do hikes with her. We just did a four and a half mile hike uh, two nights ago. And she loves it. You know, she sits in, you know, she's on, I carry her in front of me, the little ergo. And she loves looking at the trees and the birds and the sky and everything. She just has a great time. And so we're pretty convinced that she likes being out outside and we'd like to do more of it, but we're not convinced what that looks like. So, so we're figuring that out and uh, yeah, it might involve a trip to REI. See what they got. <laughs> I've never shopped the kids stuff at REI. It'll be interesting. You know, yeah, that'd be a whole new experience. That. It'll be a whole new experience, you know. So but once you get all sorted out, you know, if you ever need a camping buddy and be thrilled to join you and come see what camping with little baby Evelyn is like up close. <laughs> it's but it's you know how like you go on a camping trip with like people that snore and you're like, I'm gonna put my tent. No, 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 you stay there. You no, 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 you're good. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna take my, my tent tents over here. Over there like over 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 there it looks like a really flat nice lush spot <laughs> i don't know equally you might want to do the same thing with evelyn she's a pretty good sleeper she slept six hours last night for like a it's two fantastic. and a half months old that's fantastic right but uh who knows it could be woods, 1 a.m <laughs> i mean listen as as the guy that snores on a camping trip that other people move their tents away from I have no problem creating some distance between the tents so that I don't disrupt Evelyn distance. and Evelyn doesn't disrupt me. And I've always yeah. got the AirPods, you know, I can always put on the noise canceling AirPods and go right back to sleep. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So 
Uh, we're definitely excited to do it. It'll be fun. It'll be good to get out there. It'll be an interesting challenge. It'll be new and different, just like anything has been so far with parenthood, right? Uh, still can do a lot of the same fun things. They're just a little bit different, you know? Yeah. So we'll see how it goes. Yep. All right. Well, that's been the Live Love App podcast. Lots to talk about, lots of interesting news, lots of ways we're finding joy. Cool. To the listener, thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. All right. Y'all have a great day. Bye.